Revelation chapter 14. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of a loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one was able to learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are celibate. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from mankind as the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven with an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on earth and to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven, the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of waters. And another angel, a second one followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name, here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds will follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he sat on the cloud, swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has the power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of earth, because, because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth, and he threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God, and the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles, 
for a distance of about 1,600 stadia. Well, welcome back, everyone, as we continue once again in Revelation. Uh, let me remind you of uh, where we left off uh, from last time and the week before so that you know where we're headed this morning. And really, the context of this whole section really began in chapter 12. In chapter 12, remember, John uh, started to give the answer as to why life as a Christian in the first century was so tough, why it was met with animosity and difficulty. And he reminded us through chapter 12 that the answer is quite simple, that everyone who engages, or sorry, chooses to follow Jesus automatically engage themselves in a holy war against the devil. And even though the devil was a defeated enemy by the resurrection and uh, crucifixion of Jesus, he's out in revenge to, to seek to harm Christ's offspring in the spiritual sense, being people who follow him. Chapter 13 then told us how the holy war is fought. Satan in a counterfeit trinity, will often use the government and the political systems and the religious ideology of culture as his agents, not only to, de to deceive the world, but to persecute those who follow Jesus. Anyone who chose to show allegiance to the, the, the governing authorities over and above Christ and moral issues and so on and bought into their, their propaganda was said to have taken the mark of the beast because that promised life of security in the Roman Empire. Anyone who hadn't taken the mark of the beast, of course, had grim consequences. Life was threatened. Economic sanctions could be given to someone. The result then was a call to perseverance for those who followed Jesus Christ. Now left there, that would leave a pretty grim hope in a lot of ways for a Christian. And so what chapter 14 does is start to immediately, in the, in the beginning verses, provide a counterpoint to this grim reality. And it provides a picture of hope to those who refuse to take the mark of the beast and in bravery and loyalty take on the mark of Christ. And so really this chapter 14 is to say this, um, you know, followers of Jesus, allegiance to Christ is worth it. It's worth it. The final outcome of the holy war is that Jesus and his followers will be assured victory he will reign supreme. He will hand out judgment appropriately to those who persecuted his followers and denied his way of life. The wrongs will be made right. And so therefore, don't compromise, continue to persevere. And so you've seen on my outline that I've handed out to you that I've divided this sermon into four points. The triumph of Jesus and his followers, the universal invitation to join Jesus's team, the, inev the inevitability of God's judgment and the call for continued perseverance. So let's look at point number one, the triumph of Jesus and his followers. He says right off the cuff, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb, of Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. 
and no one could learn this song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. So the opening scene is one in contrast to the mark of the beast and the suffering. It's showing a, a scene of peace and rejoicing. If you were one of the readers in the first century, you would hear the words of Jesus standing on Mount Zion and think of Psalm 2. You would think of Psalm 2. This was important because it was a messianic psalm about how God overcame the nations who were in rebellion against him through one that he appointed to rule. Look at it with me right now. He says, why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointing, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs and the Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. So here in the opening scene, we have the lamb standing triumphant as the Messiah. Jesus is standing triumphant, and he's of triumphant over the nations in chapter 13 who are in rebellion against God. But the key verse that I love in, in Psalm 2 is actually verse 12. <laughs> he says, I've installed my king on Mount Zion. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Well, of course, because if Jesus stands victorious over the nations in the end, anyone who, who puts their trust in him as the king gets to inherit the blessings. And so, of course, you're blessed when you take refuge in him. And so we pick this up in verse 14, or chapter 14 as well, because notice who's standing with Jesus on Mount Zion, those who've taken refuge, but they're defined as 144,000. They're defined as 144,000. Now, remember from chapter 7 what the 144,000 symbolizes. It's a symbol of the new Israel the spiritual Israel, a picture of all believers who have chosen to identify with and become loyal to Jesus Christ. The 144,000 is a picture of the redeemed saints. And I love the description of them. He says, these are people who have the, his name and the name of his father on their forehead. Did you catch that? It's in verse one. The 144,000 have the name of him and the father on their foreheads. And again, this is intentional because they are, quote-unquote, marked. And remember who was marked last week? Those who took the mark of the beast, it was a definition of being loyal to or worshipping the beast, the, the enemy of, of God. It had nothing to do with a microchip under the skin or a visa card in your pocket. It had to do with loyalty, allegiance. It's, it was evident by the way you lived. And he's saying the 144,000, these redeemed people, people like you and I, we have the mark of Jesus written on us, evidenced by the way we live. Again, it's not to be taken literally, but, but symbolic. And here's the point that John's making. There's an alternative to gathering around the beast and taking his mark. is to take the mark of Christ in which victory is assured. That's the alternative. That's the opening scene. Now, I want to take a look at two points that John makes in defining those who are marked. There's two key observations, and I would call this the trademark of being marked by Christ. All right? So the first one is this. To have the mark of Christ, you have to first be purchased by him. To be marked by Jesus, you have to be purchased by him. 
You pick this up in verse 3. And they sang a new song and before the throne and before the four living creatures, and none of them could sing it except those who had been purchased from the earth. And then later on, down in verse 4, he says, these have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. So the first way you are marked, the only way to be marked is first you're to be purchased. Now, this language is really powerful because we found it in, in uh, chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Let me read this to you. Listen to the song in chapter 5 that we preached on a few weeks ago. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood from every tribe, every tongue, and people and nations. The purchasing of Christ, of us by Jesus Christ was done through his blood. It was done through his blood. 1 Corinthians 6.19 is a great cross-reference because it talks exactly about this. And these are Paul's words. He says to them, now, just so you know, the Corinthians are engaged in sexual morality and idolatry. And so he makes this comment in the midst of that. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. How were you purchased? How were you bought? With the blood of Jesus Christ. Really important because what John is saying is very pure and simple. You do not belong to Jesus and you're not marked by him because you got baptized when you're a baby. You do not belong to him because you take communion when we offer it here. You don't belong to him through rituals that the church have to offer. You don't belong to him because you're a good person and you've tried really hard to live to the, the best you can to the Ten Commandments. The Bible is clear. Every single one of us has fallen short of the glory of God in some way. And if you use love as your marker, you know that to be true. Not one of you in here has a movie that you invited all your friends over and your mom and your favorite pastor and, your, and the police chief over that you'd hit play. Not one of you. You've got hidden things. And Jesus knows that. And so he says, I'm going to send my son. God says, I'm going to send my son Jesus to the cross to die for those sins. So that by faith you receive his merits and they're imparted to you. So our righteousness is because he purchased us. That's how we start a relationship with God. We were paid for in biblical terms by his grace. By his grace. And I learned this from Lynn Budd, um, Pastor George's wife, like about 20 years ago, and she taught me this. She said this Andrew, God's grace can be understood in this way it's God's riches at Christ's expense. His grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. He sent his son to die on the cross so that by his blood you can be forgiven and enter into a relationship with him. The second thing that Mark says is found in verse 4. In verse 4. He t- and it's a kind of a weird uh, phraseology. Let's look at it together. He says, These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Now, <laughs> these verses are much debated. Is John really saying that you never get to heaven and never get to experience Jesus' triumph? And if you've 
Now, if, if you've stayed single, in other words, it's a, a, a statement against marriage and that you have had to have maintained your virginity in order to get to heaven? Is that what he's saying? Well, of course not. This would contradict the rest of Scripture in which marriage is highly commended and actually is a picture of, of um, Christ's relationship to the church. So he's not saying don't get married and only non-married, and only non-married people make it to glory. I believe here that John is speaking metaphorically again. Remember that sexual intimacy and marriage unions were often used in the Bible to describe one's relationship to God spiritually. I'll say that again. Sexual like, uh, intimacy and marriage unions were often used metaphorically in the Bible to describe one's relationship to God spiritually. Think of Old Testament Israel. Old Testament Israel. In Hosea 2 and Ezekiel 23, it speaks about them committing adultery when they went after the idols of the land. So it's a good Bible study. Go check it out. It says you committed adultery. You committed these harlotry type crimes and they went after idols. And so God is very clear that I see cheating on me as like a, almost like a, like a marriage union. And so he's very clear on this in the Old Testament. John does the same in Revelation. He does the same in Revelation. Later on, he's going to use sexual imagery in Revelation. Rome is described as a harlot in chapter 17, and you see it in 14.8 in our passage today. Let's read it. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Sexual immorality used in a spiritual context. Following after false teaching of Jezebel back in chapter 2 was defined as committing adultery with her. And the church later on in chapter 19 is described as the bride of Christ. This is why Paul himself in 2 Corinthians can make this statement. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds have somehow been led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Jesus. Notice how virginity is defined there as devotion to Jesus. He's not talking sexually here. He's talking spiritually. You've kept your minds like pure, and it's obvious in the way you live your life out. So to be undefiled and to be chaste then really is a, is a metaphor to say this. To be marked by Jesus is to be one who's not compromised or got in bed with the world. <laughs> you haven't gotten in bed with the world. You don't take your cues from it. You don't seek to, to uh, claim to be a follower of Jesus on one side and then follow the world systems on the other. It's a pure devotion to him. And this is why I think it's important. He's, right after that, he says, these are those who choose to follow the lamb. And look how it's defined in verse 12. What does it mean to follow the lamb? In verse 12, he says it this way. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus Christ. How do you know someone's marked by Jesus Christ? They keep his commandments. The only way you can keep them is you have to learn them. And when you learn them, then you know what to keep. And what's cool is Jesus doesn't make it difficult to figure out how to love them. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So he doesn't have some Hollywood fantasy love where you have to, you're left to figure it out. 
he actually tells you. He tells you, and the scriptures are clear. So let's look at the second point now, the universal invitation to to, to join Team Jesus. (laughs) Verse 6, I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory, because the hour of the judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. What I love about this verse is that God, we can see here, is one of second chances. One of second chances. It's clear here, he makes it obvious that the hour of judgment has come. So he says this to the world, I'm coming, I'm coming to judge that which is not right. And that which is not right is very clear. It's a failure to worship him properly as creator. They fail to give him honor as a creator. You can you understand how that feels. How many times have you made something or created something and someone else has taken glory for it? And how that could have kind of hurt your heart a little bit because you're like, you stole my thunder kind of thing that I deserved. And so we all know what it's like when people take credit for things that you actually were the impetus for. Well, that's what it is to to not be allegiant to Jesus Christ or to worship other gods. He's like, I created you for relationship and you've turned to another God, another system of belief. And so it kind of hurts God's feelings in this way. He describes himself often in the Old Testament of being a jealous God, not in the sinful sense, but in the hurtful sense. And the, the sin is clear. They've failed to fear him, which means obey his commands, they fail to give him glory, which is to praise him. They fail to acknowledge him as the creator of life and the sustainer of life. And yet he says this, I want the eternal gospel to go out. I'm judge, but I first want the eternal gospel to go out. He wants his gospel preached. He wants our faith shared. And this is so important because Revelation is very much a book about God handing out judgment and very much about God getting justice for, for wrongdoing. We're going to see more of this in a minute. But Revelation, actually, if you, I hope you've learned this in the last sort of few weeks, it's actually a huge book about grace. The gospel is preached throughout this entire book. It's a, Revelation's about one more opportunity, one more opportunity for those who don't know Christ. And the message is this, there's still time to change. There's still time to become part of Team Jesus to stand triumphant on Mount Zion. And so there's a necessity, friends, for us to be looking to do this, looking to do this and have a burden in our hearts for the necessity to share with others. Now, the necessity is necessary because there's one more point we have to make here, and that's because God will judge inevitably. Point three on your outline. There's an inevitability about God's judgment. So yes, he's patient. Yes, he's merciful. Yes, he's gracious. But one day the clock will stop and the time will run out. And so these, the angels here, there's three angels, they really pronounce um, the gospel message and the warnings to those who oppose God. Let me just read a couple of examples to you about the inevitability of God's judgment. Look at verse 8. He says, another angel, a second one, followed, saying... 
Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who has made all of the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. So he's saying this, like Babylon, by the way, is a euphemism for Rome, but also represents all nations or all governments in, throughout history who are in rebellion against God. A cool verse, actually, if you want to write this down, is 1 Peter 5.13. Because uh, Peter says this in 5.13, he says, those who are in Babylon greet you. So he's writing, he's writing his first Peter, he's writing a book to the churches in the Galatia region, sort of like modern day Turkey. And he says, those in Babylon greet you. So in the early church, um, Babylon was a euphemism for Rome. It was just like um, everyone used that as code words, code language. So he's like, he's telling, he's telling the Christians in, in the first century Asia, fallen is Rome fallen god is judging and it's not going to stand it's inevitable it may not seem like it now because they have so much power and authority but they are going down god's kingdom is going to win another place we see this actually is in verse 9 forward i'll I'll just read actually verse 10 he says he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of god which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger and will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of the torment goes up forever and ever. Again, speaking of the beast and the inability for it to withstand God's kingdom, he uses Sodom and Gomorrah language. Remember what happened there? Fire and brimstone, smoke, and so on and so forth. He's all pointing to the Old Testament here. And finally, we see these harvest scenes. Harvest scenes. A pretty, pretty brutal one in verse 20. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. If you're wondering what 16 stadia meant, it was 200, uh, 200 miles. So you get the idea here in this, in this throughout the entire four, chapter 14 that an inevitability is that God's kingdom is going to win. God's kingdom is going to win. But I want to make two observations about this winning, so to speak. First of all, the language here is not to be taken literally. There's not going to be blood for 200 miles in the, in the fields of Israel. What he's, but he is, what he's trying to say is this, is that you need to take God's judgment seriously. Let me use metaphorical language to invoke some kind of urgency in you and an understanding that, that without him, Without the Lord, there is going to be eventual judgment. It's not going to be pretty. He's trying to invoke urgency and sort of like a holy, healthy fear. Second thing I want you to, to see here is that God is not judging because he's vindictive or because he's a fear monger or he's playing whack-a-mole at the stampede, you know, with that little thing just for fun. What's happening here is he's judging because those who have rejected him leave him no choice. He's offering his gospel. He's offering salvation. He's offering grace. But the people are saying, I don't want it. I don't want it. This is key again in verse 8. He says, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine press of, or wine of the immorality, the people have a choice in this. The people have a choice, but they're choosing to go after Rome in its ways and not the Lord in his ways. 
And so this is really important because God's a gentleman right up to the day where he has to judge. Metzger, in his commentary, words it brilliantly. He says this, God respects our free will and will never force us to turn to him. So this picture of wrath and hell means nothing more or less than the, than the less terrible truth that the sufferings of those who persist in rejecting God's love in Christ are self-imposed and self-perpetuated. The inevitable consequence is that if they persist in such rejection, God will never violate their personality. It's a brilliant quote and a true quote. And that supports the scriptures. Ezekiel 33, 11. This is one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. None. Revelation chapter 9 and verse 20. Again, a powerful uh, verse, and we already saw this. Listen to this as he's handing out judgment. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, so as not to worship demons and so on. The, the, the plagues were, were, are meant, the judgments are meant to invoke a response to turn to God. That's what they're meant to do. It's not God being vindictive. I know many atheist apologetic um, people who are like ridiculously opposed to the Bible and its validity and anything to do with God. One of their biggest things is to say that God's a vindictive whack-a-mole type judge and they quote all the scriptures. But when they, when they don't, but what they fail to do is look at the context of the scriptures in which they were being judged. God gave ample warning, ample warning. Even before the days of Noah, 120 years. Jesus for three years went through Israel saying, the time of judgment, time of judgment. Ample warnings. And the people said, no, I don't want you. I want to say one thing about this because it's important. We know that the Bible says that God is love. God is love. Justice has to be part of love for you to be truly loving. You have to be fully just to be fully loving. Now think of that as a parent. If you're a parent and all you ever do is extend to your children everything that they, that they want and desire, think of the outcome of what they're gonna be like as human beings. Completely self-centered, completely immoral, completely going after their own ways, no respect for you, no respect for authority, no work ethic. All of these things have to be trained into a child. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. That's what the Bible teaches. He puts parents in place to remove it from them. So to remove it means you have to be just. You have to invoke judgment. But again, not because you're a fear monger, dictator, mom or dad, it's because you love them. And society demands justice be met. It, it, this is the cry of the world right now. Like everyone's growing, someone needs to solve the world's problems because there's no justice. Well, it's because you're seeking the wrong means and the wrong person in order to find their morality to invoke justice. I got this quote a long time ago, and it's, it's an amazing quote. God's need for justice. Law without grace results in tyranny. Grace without law results in anarchy. Think about that. In the, in, this, in the countries and in the families where, so if you're like a hard-nosed dad 
where everything works on your terms, or you're under a hard-nosed country like North Korea, when you just go law, 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 and no grace or mercy, it's tyranny. It's tyranny, because it's just everyone's just living in total fear. But if you're like a, well, a lot of the parents are today, unfortunately, and even our governments, like when you have a, like this sort of like a kind of free-for-all attitude towards life and install, install no discipline, it's anarchy, it's chaos in society. And so God needs to be just because he's a, he's a healthy balance of law and grace. He holds everyone accountable for sin, but he extends grace and mercy through Jesus Christ to be forgiven. And then you accept his commandments for the way to live out your life. See the harmony in the gospel? That's incredible. Which leads me to my fourth and final point. The call for continued perseverance. Verse 12. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus Christ. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. You who says, sorry, yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. Of course, perseverance is required when there's two calls for your life, two calls for allegiance, two calls for worship. There, you, there's, a, there's a stress in society to take their mark and to live in allegiance to them and to keep your mouth quiet in relation to the gospel. And the other side is to take the mark of Christ, to be allegiant to him, which calls for the preaching of the gospel and the sharing of your faith. When you do that, you can suffer a lot of rejection and a lot of tribulation. So the temptation is to take the mark of the beast to alleviate trials in this lifetime. But what John is doing here is encouraging the believers to persevere through the temporary suffering suffering they're going to experience, knowing the reward that awaits them in eternity. Endure temporary suffering for the sake of what you stand to inherit. Remember, Jesus stands on Mount Zion with his followers, not Rome, not any other governing system. And that's why, again, it's such an important reminder in verse 13 to remind them that even if you die for Christ, you're blessed. Did you pick that up? Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. That's totally countercultural. That's totally counter to the, what, says, what your flesh says and what's in your heart. But the reason is, is because death is not the end for a Christian. It's only the beginning. It's only the beginning. And it will result in eternity. So what are we to learn, big picture? First one is this. At the end of history, it will be Jesus and his eternal kingdom that will stand victorious over the spiritual and earthly powers. That's the opening panel, verses 1 through 5. He wants you to know right off the cuff, it will be Jesus and his eternal kingdom that will stand victorious, not Rome, not any governing authority, not Satan and his counterfeit trinity. They will not be victorious. It will be Jesus Christ. Therefore, since Jesus and his kingdom will stand victorious at the end of history, we are to consider three things. Number one, 
We should seek to take his mark. Take his mark. First of all, that we are we understand that we need to be purchased. We need to be purchased. In other words, we need to be first forgiven of our sins and forgiven for the things that we've done wrong. When we when we do that and we when we by faith receive him, knowing that none of the church rituals or any of our attempts to be moral in and of ourselves redeem us, that's purely by his blood. When we when we understand that, we are forgiven and we receive his mark, the mark of the Holy Spirit. Next, we are marked when we follow his commandments, which means, especially in that world, but even more so in ours now as as things come to a head, that there's no compromise. There's no compromise. There's no syncretism. We can't put together like a painter's palette of religions, like I'm going to worship Jesus and Buddha and uh, have my rocks and my crystals and go to the tarot card reader and right and dabble in those things it's purely like 100 percent jesus or nothing we follow his commands and his commands alone because he's the only way we can be redeemed is through blood we have to worship the creator not the created a lot of these things are just created (laughs) also we need to share our faith knowing judgment is inevitable that's, that's Revelation 14. Judgment's inevitable. So how do we do this? We do it in prayer. Colossians 4 says, basically, that you can seek God and ask him to open doors for you in order to have conversations with people and to talk to people. If we do it in prayer, it's a lot easier because then when we get the opportunities, God's ordained them for us. And so the door's a lot easier to walk through. We also do it with gentleness and respect for a human being. If you're in the midst of an argument somehow and it's gotten heated that you've already crossed the line that god didn't want you to cross <laughs> right we do a gentleness and respect and we do it um holding the person that's having value the third thing we can learn is that we must be willing to endure temporary hardship knowing what awaits us in eternity again not that we should seek to be troublemakers but you can expect friction when you follow christ and one of the things I learned, like, you know, about a year and a half ago, that just sort of like uh, stuck out to me and when I was studying Revelation in the beginning was that really we follow a lamb that was slain, not the one that was wrapped in bubble wrap, right? You guys will put on the bubble wrap when you want to fall. You take your kids skating to soften the blows. Jesus wasn't wrapped in bubble wrap. He, was, he faced hardship. He faced trials. We follow one who was slain. Therefore, if we walk in his footsteps, like it says we are to do in verse um, 3 here, sorry, in verse 4, then we would expect hardship because we are connected to him. Again, but the Bible is saying here in Revelation 14, it's worth it because of the eternal promises that God awaits. It's awesome when you look at 12, 13, and 14 together, because then you get the big picture of what John's trying to say. And you know what? It totally relates to life today. For 2,000 years, this message hasn't changed. It was true for them in Rome, and it's true for us today. Lord, we should have ended the uh, service with that song as our prayer, because it's so fitting that we are thankful for your sacrifice and for your grace and 
we know the cost that was for you, and we know that um, it was done out of your love, and your judgment and justice is, is something that has to flow out of love, but that's not where you want to start. You want to start with a relationship and forgiveness and, and second chances. So we thank you that you're a God of grace, and I just pray for our church as we continue to minister in this town, that uh, we would start there with people that uh, start with your love and your grace and your mercy and that you're a God of second chances and, and move the conversations in that way. But help them see the need for forgiveness and that they've done wrong and that ultimately to be loving is to be just. And so that's a tight rope we have to walk and we're, we all struggle with that at times. But we do believe by your Spirit's power and the transforming work you do in our lives that we can get um, more equipped and more um, gracious in the way we, we, we share that faith and share that message. So we thank you for the service today and for your word, and we look forward to um, continued teaching from Revelation as it's been a tremendous book to learn from. And uh, who knew that your book was a book of grace? Revelation has always been taught with a, with a spirit of fear and a spirit of uh, basically like, well, it's driven people to like, you know, huge anxiety and whatnot. But when we, when we learn it for what it really is, we learn that there's a gospel message in pretty much every chapter. And it's about your love flowing down and your justice only being there out of people's hard hearts, but not because you want to start there. So again, we thank you for this book and what we're learning. In Christ's name, amen.